Glad to be with you. Uh, this morning we'll look at Psalm 19. We'll focus on the first six verses of the psalm, uh, which is more or less sort of uh, the first half of the psalm in a way. It's 14 verses long, but you have a kind of concluding something on the end. So we'll look at Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6. Before we do that, let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, you are God of all the earth. You knew the end from the beginning. From today, you see clearly tomorrow and the day after, and the months and the years to come. You hold all things in your hands. You are greater than this epidemic. You are more powerful than the troubles the world faces. And your son has promised to be with the church each day, every day, until the end of the age. We look to you today, God, and we ask that you would remind us of your greatness and your power. That we would know in our hearts that the quiet voice of the scriptures, that the quiet voice of a church gathered digitally but dispersed, does count on the power of the Almighty God. Your voice is but a whisper, but your power has no limits. Nothing can contain you. You can do all your holy will. And we pray, Father, that this morning we can contemplate your greatness and in that moment feel a transcendence beyond the troubles of our day and be reminded that Christ was raised and that our hope cannot be taken away. We pray, Father, that you would open our minds and hearts to this scripture this morning, that you would be glorified and that Christ would would draw near and we would draw near to him, God. This is our prayer this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Psalm 19, verses 1 to 6, this is the word of the Lord. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words, whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So I want to give you some clues, first of all, as to how to read something like this. Sort of a background. In other words, let's, you know, let's put David around year one, about a thousand years before Jesus. And, and King David here is sort of, I mean, you, you can think of it, King David sort of has a journal. And he's writing or, or at least composing poems, his own sort of private adoration. Somehow those things made it into the Bible. Somehow they are part of Christian scripture. Somehow, what David wrote here preaches Jesus Christ, even though David didn't know the name of Christ. It wouldn't be a thousand years until Christ walked on the earth. So I'd like you, 
first of all, to give you some clues as to how we would approach something like this as a piece of Christian scripture. How do we read it to get Jesus? How do we read it to, to, to access Jesus in this text? First, I want to say, there are no big secrets. There's no secret code. There's no special thing you have to do with the text to get Jesus. You don't have to do anything magical to it. Pray, read, and pray. And the Lord promises to be with his people. This book is written by the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit's job is none other than to bring Christ to us and to bring us to Christ. So it requires no special preparation, but there is more we can learn. There is, for example, a very special moment in 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. In sum, I'm just going to summarize what's going on there. Peter there is preaching to the New Testament church. He's writing to the New Testament church. Again, more than a thousand years after this psalm is written. And he says to the New Testament church, the prophets preached about what would be yours. So he's saying the Old Testament taught, they preached and taught in ancient Israel about the riches that the New Testament church would enjoy. He's talking about the gospel of Jesus. He's talking about the name of Jesus. He's talking about the fact that Peter can go before a group of people and say that Jesus did what God promised he would do. That Jesus was crucified, dead, and buried, and raised on the third day. And that forgiveness of sins is preached in his name. Peter said, the old prophets preached about this. And he said, it was, there's a magical thing that he says there. He says, it was the spirit of Christ bearing witness through the prophets. It's amazing. You have to know that the Son of God, because he is God, can be anywhere at any time. The Son of God can be here in this church and also be outside the church at the same time. The Son of God can be here in this church and can be there with you at home. You know, the virtual life is difficult. It's very difficult for teaching because the poor students are so separated from their teachers. Maybe many of them are happy to be separated from their teachers, let's be honest. But the church has a special advantage because our God fills all space. He fills heaven and earth. So the distance is a sacrifice, but it is not the end for the church. The Spirit is present. Our Lord is present. No less where you are than where we are, than where the... And everywhere. Now think about this too. He can be anywhere at the same time, anywhere he wishes to be. He is everywhere. But the same thing goes with time. The same Christ who died on the cross preached through the prophets, motivated and guided the preaching of the prophets. And all that time through months and years, decades, over centuries, Christ was calling people to himself. 
He was calling people to himself and, and inviting them to look forward in history to what he would do. So important was the death would be, would be the death of Christ and his resurrection. So pivotal would it be in the course of the history of the world. And so much would hang for sinners on the hope of that resurrection that for thousands of years, Jesus preached the gospel of his own work to his people. In the most remarkable sort of religious mystery, the spirit of Christ preached through different people at different times. The same Christ who preached to and through Abraham, preached to and through Moses, preached to and through the prophets of Israel, preaches to and through King David. So we dig into the words of David and we hear in joy the heart of David exposed, his own religious experience. You know, I came across this psalm and, and, and I decided to preach this psalm because in, in, my, in my daily reading now, I'm going through the psalms uh, and I'm, I'm in the gospel of Luke, I'm in the psalms and then to conclude, I read a couple paragraphs from the last book of the Bible as well. That's my, that's my daily routine. And so as I'm going through, I hit Psalm 19 and I've read it many times. I teach it almost every semester. But this time it, it, it just struck me as so unusual I would invite you, just as an exercise, read, read through the first couple of sentences of each psalm. One, two, three. And you'll see that when you get to 19, all of a sudden something different happens. David starts to speak in grandiose terms. All of a sudden, his heart is struck. I don't know if he, he didn't write them in this order, very unlikely. But 19 is unique, it's distinct. And when we are struck with the courage and the grandeur of the language of 19, 1 to 6, we're sort of participating and we're witnessing David's personal religious experience. David's own heart is struck with the greatness of God as it is revealed in the world around him. And we get to enjoy that. We get to come alongside David and feel his awe and his fear. We get to, we get to see David tremble at the majesty of God. And in that, in him, we see Christ. We see Christ who so feared God that he obeyed even unto death on the cross. We see Christ who said, if they don't cry out, the very stones will worship me. That's what David is seeing. If every man on the earth turns away from the Lord, the earth itself Worships God. Creation itself cannot be silenced. The glory of God cannot be hidden.
It's that confidence that carried Jesus to the cross. When his entire support system failed him, his friends failed him, his best students were confused and abandoned, abandoned him. The teachers of Israel opposed him and hated him. The nation of Israel followed him just because he healed them, because he could do tricks. They believed in what he could do for them. No one knew Jesus. He knew what was in their hearts. So how could he march all the way to the cross? On the earth there was no hope for him. The glory of God could not be silenced. Could not be stilled or stifled, obscured, contained, restrained or defeated. He can do all his holy will. And Christ could, at the highest possible cost, put his hand, put his life in the hands of the Father. Because he knew that he is the Lord and there is no other. And by the zeal of the Lord it was done that death could not contain him. That's sort of what's hidden here in in what David is experiencing. David did not know the gospel of Paul in the depth and the richness that Paul would write it for us. But David knew the same Christ. He knew the very same God. So when you pick up something like Psalm 19, you can say, here is David, the king who looked forward to Christ. He knew the grace of God. And he knew his majesty. He knew the grace that Christ would accomplish. And so we know that there is... Nothing but, as Paul would say, nothing but Christ and him crucified here in Psalm 19. But let's, let's look, look at it in a little bit more detail because it's, it's, it's tricky. It's very interesting, actually, the way he articulates things. The heavens declare the glory of God, he says. And we know and we say, God is in heaven. Sometimes when we say God is in heaven, we mean, I don't know where he is. When we say God is in heaven, we mean not even NASA can find him. But actually, the first verse of the Bible said, in the beginning, God created the heavens. So when David says, the heavens declare, he's talking about created things. He's not talking about, he's not talking about a heaven that is not on a place, or in a place, or locatable. David is looking up. And he says, all that encompasses us, all that is above, declares the glory of God. He says, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. The very interesting thing, the thing that strikes us right away is that David, David uses a weird way of, of, of describing the display of God's glory. Now, we say this sort of thing often. The mountains are beautiful. Wow, God is mighty. You know, the sunset is beautiful. Wow, God, God, is, God is love or, so, or something. I don't know what you say. but David does not say that the huge trees sort of suggest the power of God. He does not say that, you know, that 
the expanse of the sky hints at the immensity, the great sort of size of the being. of. He doesn't say that. He says that heaven talks. He says the skies speak. He says day to day and night to night pour forth speech and words and declarations. In one sense, that is obviously false. In another sense, we can see that David is trying to, he's, he's reaching, he's searching for words that will somehow articulate the force and the clarity and the abundance of the display of God in the world. David is not saying, if you stop and think about it, the size of the sun, the heat of the sun, the brightness of the sun, if you stop and think about it, it's kind of like God. He's not saying that. He is using everything he is using. He's using the full poet's repertoire. He's saying things flatly, scientifically false in order to articulate, again, the force, the unavoidability of the display of God in creation. We are told about God in the world. The world preaches and teaches and clearly states the glory of God, the majesty of his handiwork and his ubiquity, his presence everywhere is very clearly taught and stated in everything that is perceived. So there's something, that's, that's sort of the positive side that David is, David is saying, it is so clear, I might as well say that heaven is speaking. It's not a suggestion, it's not a hint, it's not kind of a, kind of a nondescript feeling. Heaven is saying it to us. Now the negative side of that is how absurd it is. Think about this. If the whole world is such a clear and abundant and, and vocal witness or theater or display of the greatness and goodness of God, if that is the case, if it is written everywhere and broadcast everywhere, how strange it is when the most magnificent creature under the sun, the one made in the very image of God, whose very being and faculties and conduct in the world were meant to display God in concentrated fashion. How absurd it is when the human being looks around and says, maybe there is something out there. That kind of indifferent semi-theism, maybe there's a God. That kind of cool, controlled, domesticated religion is an insult to the God who everywhere declares himself in what has been made. It is wickedness 
to enjoy the goodness of creation. And to use all the faculties that we have to sort of coolly entertain the possibility that a God might be there. That is wicked pride and self-righteousness. It makes much more sense, in fact, to be angry at God and to wish him away. At least the response has a sort of shred of truth to it. But to pretend to be self-sufficient in God's world, really there's no place for that in God's world. Day to day pours out speech. And night to night reveals knowledge. Verse 3 is a little, bit, a little bit strange, but it packs something amazing. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. <clears throat> so, again, a little bit strange. Hard to understand what's, what's saying there. It seems this way. That it seems that verse 3 is saying this. The heavens declare the glory of God. Speech is poured forth everywhere where you look. God has clearly declared. His own creation declares and the very rocks cry out. No matter what language you understand, you can hear clearly the speech about God that is everywhere you look. No person in the world speaks every language. But every person in the world, no matter what language, can look to the heavens and see a declaration of the glory of God. Can look at the skies and see his handiwork. Can put his head down at night to sleep. And wake up in the morning because the Lord is there. Can see the sun run its course. And know that God is present. And even if a person can speak every language in the world. No one can speak every language at the same time. There is a universality. A majesty, an expansiveness that David is here pondering. This is not, you know, I said it's kind of David's religious experience, but it is not an experience of something private. It's a personal religious experience, but only personal because David's heart has been turned to see what has been there all along. We live and we move, in other words. Again, Paul will say, we live and we move. And we have our being in him. There is nowhere we can hide from God. The whole creation speaks to us constantly. That he is there. That he is sovereign. That he upholds. His voice cannot be silenced. And all men and all women and all children, all people 
hear his voice night and day, loud and clear. This is what David is saying. And then he paints a very interesting sort of picture. He says, their voice goes through all the earth and their words to the end of the, no, to the, end of the world. And then he says, in them he has set a tent for the sun. This is a remarkable image. I thought about it a long time before I sort of uh, came to appreciate it a little bit more. I, I appreciate it more and more, which comes out like a bridegroom. So look at the trick. The, the trick is at the end of four. Um, in them he has set a tent for the sun. In them, what's them? The, the voices and the words and the speech about God. <clears throat> so in, within the voices and the words and the speech about God, under sort of the canopy of the voices and the words and the speech about God, in that great sort of cosmic tent, underneath that, the sun runs its course. See, David is talking altitude here. The very source of life and warmth is underneath the great expanse that declares the glory of God. That is the whole experience of human life. Day to day, night to night, season after season, and year after year is run according to the cycle of the sun. And David says the sun itself is contained by those things that display the glory of God. By the speech, the words, the declarations about God. They contain even the sun. Again, he's speaking about how high and how expansive is this display of God. So the Apostle Paul will make a very similar observation David here hints again at universality. That is the idea that everybody everywhere, no matter what language you speak, hears the voice of God. Here's nature declaring the glory of God. Everybody everywhere. This psalm is 19.1-6 is amazing because David's speaking about the universality, but at the same time, while it's universal, not all people can declare something like this. It's very special. Again, this is a personal religious experience, but it's not an experience of something private. David's heart has been changed so that he can see what has been there all along. Remember, when Paul is converted, what happens to him? He is blinded. So that later, his sight can be regained. So that he can see again for the first time. When the scales fell from Paul's eyes, he could see for the first time. He could not see anything that wasn't already there. But for the first time, Paul could see that the heavens truly declare the glory of God. And Paul would go on to write the first chapter of Romans. I'm going to work here from Romans chapter 1, 18 to 32. 
Because these connect very nicely. Paul in Romans 1, 18 to 32 speaks about the whole world. He moves on uh, a little bit later to talk about the Jews who have the, the scriptures. But here he's talking about the whole world. That sort of moves around, that lives and moves and has its being under this massive canopy that cannot be measured, that constantly speaks to us about God. The storms speak to us about God. The sun speaks to us about God. A quiet breeze speaks to us about God. The night, the day, the movement, the progress, the change, the sameness and the newness, all of it speaks to us about God. Paul says, God is clearly seen. He makes the most amazing statement that will never get old. It will be fresh as the first time he wrote it until the, until the very last day. He says, the invisible things of God have been clearly perceived. There isn't a philosopher on earth who can make sense of that. The invisible God has shown himself. Not only that, he has made himself known. He's not made it possible that we could figure him out. He's not sort of made himself available, like he's sort of taken the seat next to us and shown himself open to conversation. He, he declares himself all around us and within. Everything that God made speaks constantly to us about God. And what Paul goes on to describe in the second half of the first chapter of Romans is very likely autobiographical. Now he's speaking again about the non-Jews, about the whole world, who hear, which hears constantly the voice of God, but doesn't know God. But there's a little bit of autobiography there, because Paul knows that before those scales fell from his eyes, he was blind. He knew the Old Testament like no one alive today. But still he was blind to the God who was there. Paul knew the mind of the sinner, because he once, just as well, refused to acknowledge the message that was constantly spoken to him. He refused to hear. And futilely, he plugged his ears and closed his eyes and tried to silence the voice of God that bothered him constantly pestered his conscience and struck him with fear. How could a man, think about Paul before he's converted, how could a man who knows the God of love and mercy, how could a man who knows the history of Israel and the patience of Israel, the patience of the God of Israel, when Israel again and again turned from the law of God, And only return to God when they're in trouble, when they need help, when they're outnumbered. How can a man who knows Hosea 11, 
Israel is my son. And I will take him by the hand and teach him to walk. How could he know the tender God of deliverance and be such a violent person, persecuting, arresting, even killing in the name of this God? Paul will later look back and say that he himself was in sin. He will even say that he knew better. Romans 1.32 But he not only did the things he knew he shouldn't do, he encouraged others around him. He, built, he helped to encourage a culture of the suppression of the goodness of God. He was part of a culture of the rejection of the truth of God. Paul himself. And he says, this is what people do. We receive the message that is constantly speak to us, spoken to us, and we suppress it. We reject it. We hear the voice from within. Our conscience Teaching us about the law of God. The law, as it were, crying out from our hearts. And we repress it. And we change it for something else. And we reinvent it. And we redesign it. And we rename it. We domesticate it somehow. We master it. We dominate it. We get superstitious. Or we invent false gods. Or we become philosophers. Oh, we say that there's nothing there but nature, and chemicals, and elements, and the forces of physics. But somehow, one way or another, we run from the God whom we cannot help but hear. We obscure and confuse the voice of the God who is there. What we see in Psalm 19, 1 to 6 is a converted man. We see a man who has been baptized into the death of Christ. He has been brought into the silencing of his sins. You know, Paul writes in Romans 8 that the whole creation is crying out for the revelation of the sons of God. The whole creation looks to Jesus who was raised. The whole creation knows that its hope is in the Lord. He alone who started it can make it new. He alone who is the author of life can give new life. Christ alone was crucified, dead, and buried. And there, silenced in the tomb, is our suppression, in our repression, in our confusion, in our darkness, in our hatred of God. Emerging from the tomb on the third day, on that morning, is the hope of the new creation. 
David himself is baptized, I'm using Paul's language from Romans 6, baptized into his death. And David himself rose with Christ to new life in the spirit. The scripture doesn't say that scales fell from David's eyes. But spiritually they did. When David came to to know the Lord, his heart was made new. And the scales fell from his eyes and he looked at the heavens. And he said, wow, the heavens declare. Everywhere this God is declared. David has been welcomed into the hope of the new creation. And it has happened by Christ and by Christ alone. He's teaching us about who Christ is. He's teaching us that Christ is the hope of the world. That when Christ is raised, he is, as Paul says, the beginning of the new creation. It always seemed to me weird that when you graduate, they call it commencement. Commencement means beginning. I always thought, when you graduate, that means it's over. That means I'm done. That's what everybody says. I think it's misnamed. Somebody ought to change it. If you're going to protest something, protest the misnaming of that ceremony. But truly the resurrection of Christ is the commencement. It is the end of death and fear of God. It is the end of hopelessness. Look to Christ and see what he lived through. His friends abandoned him. His people rejected him. No one understood him. The COVID thing is tough and stressful. We're stuck at home. We can't go to work. We're afraid the government is pulling one over on us. All kinds of stress and nuisance, maybe lost jobs and so on, you know very well. And I would never stand before you and belittle the suffering of the world. But Paul himself says, the suffering of this world is nothing compared to the glory of knowing Christ. Can we endure? Can we thrive? Can we be encouraged through this or any trial? Can we suffer persecution? Can we lose our jobs? Can we be lonely? Can we be sick and tired and hopeless? Can our dreams and our future crack, shake, crumble before our very eyes and yet we rejoice he was raised and he is the new beginning of all things the heavens declare the glory of the God who raised Jesus from the dead the sky above proclaims his handiwork the handiwork and the mastery The power and the sovereignty of the one who raised Christ from the dead. Believe in him. 
and he will declare you righteous and he will take you home. Amen. Let's pray.